right. Are we on? I think so. All right. Very good. Well, once you grab your Bible and open up to Matthew 27, verse 27, we'll go ahead and read Matthew 27, 27 through the end of the chapter. So we look at this incredible passage dealing with the crucifixion of our Lord. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took a reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than his first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go. 
make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is the word of the Lord. Well, comedian George Carlin has famously said and defined irony as follows. Irony is a state of affairs that is the reverse of what was to be expected. As a result, opposite to and in mockery of the appropriate result. And then he gives a number of illustrations. Here's, here's one of them. He says, if a diabetic is on his way to buy insulin to save his life, and he's killed by a runaway truck, he's a victim of an accident. If the truck was delivering sugar, he's the victim of an oddly poetic coincidence. But if the truck was delivering insulin, ah, then he is the victim of irony. Well, there's another kind of irony as well. In fact, if you type in irony into Google, the third definition that you'll see there is this. It's a literary technique originally used in Greek tragedy by which the full significance of a character's words or actions are clear to the audience or reader, although unknown to that character. And that is the kind of irony that is the product of great storytelling. In particular, it is one that we see layered in our passage over and over again. Uh, more and more studies on irony in the Bible are being done, and one of them they're finding is that it, it happens most often in Matthew and John's gospel, so there's been many. And I am completely indebted to D.A. Carson on this first of two points. We'll look at this passage today. It's verses 27 through 50, the ironies of the cross. That's his title, and I'll borrow his outline, because once you've seen the text that way, you just can't unsee it. And then the second point uh, is the skepticism of the priests and Pharisees. We'll look at verse 51 through 66, and we'll take some time just to kind of walk through these. Um, But first, we will look at these four ironies of the cross. The man who is mocked as king is king. One more time, verses 27 through 31. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and they put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews! And they spit on him. And they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. So this is the man who is mocked as king, really is king. As we saw last week, Jesus has been handed over by Pilate to be crucified. And so here we see the soldiers having a little fun before the actual crucifixion. And clearly these soldiers are intending to be ironic They mean the exact opposite of what they are saying. They are calling him king, deriding him, saying clearly he is no king. They robe him and put a crown of thorns on his head and a reed in his hand. They're mocking him. And they're doing so because they are confident this man is no king. Kings are not crucified. But you see, there is actually a deeper irony. Because God knows, and Matthew knows, and the readers know that Jesus truly is the king. Because if you've been reading through Matthew's gospel, then you know that the book begins, that Jesus is the son of David. He's the true king. He's the expected king, the final king to come. And we also know that one day Jesus will return and that all authority has been given to him since the Great Commission. But he will return and claim that authority and every tongue will confess and every knee will bow before his lordship and declare him king over all. Hidden within their attempts to be ironic, they speak a truth which they themselves did not understand. That Jesus truly is the king. Here's the second irony. The man who is utterly powerless 
is powerful. Look again at verse 32 through 40. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And he went, and when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So again, normally after the sentence of crucifixion, crucifixion had been passed, they would have taken him and beaten him. The other gospel accounts give us this account, that he would have been flogged severely. And so what they would then do after a severe flogging is they would give him the cross member, the horizontal member of the cross, and they would have the person carry it up to the place of crucifixion, leaving the vertical piece in the ground. But it seems that Jesus, after the flogging, is so weak that he cannot continue. Now, normally, what the Romans would have done is as he's carrying that cross member, they'd continue the beating as he went. But apparently, Jesus is so weakened that they're worried he's going to die prematurely. They want to make sure he dies on the cross. So they stop beating him, and they conscript a man to pick up the cross member and carry it for him. This is how powerless he is. He cannot even carry his own cross member. And they get to the place of crucifixion, and they nail him to the cross, Naked, of course. In the movies, Jesus is always wearing a loincloth. But the Romans crucified you naked, adding to the exposure, to the shame of the whole situation. So there he is, hanging, utterly helpless, naked, exposed, beaten, bleeding to death already. And yet, he is suffocating slowly with every breath, having to press up and pull up to expand his lungs. And the passers-by mock him in this state. You claim to be so powerful. You said you could rebuild a temple after destroying it. Well, if you're so powerful, come on down. See, we must remember that for Jews, there's an especially horrid element to the crucifixion. Because Deuteronomy 21-23 says, anyone who is hanged on a tree is under God's curse. So by having him crucified, the Jews were seeking to demonstrate that this man, Jesus, was under the very curse of God. And that seems to be playing out in their midst. Jesus, under the curse of God, all of his claims to power, all of his miracles for naught, which is why they cry out, if you're the son of God, go ahead and come on down. See, in their minds, his powerlessness on the cross is proving that he's just a fake. He's a phony. But therein lies the deeper irony because God knows and Matthew knows and the readers know that he really is the all-powerful son of God, the eternal one. So this comes to the third irony. The man who can't save himself saves others. Look at verse 41 and 42. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. You see, the chief priests and elders join in with the mocking. He saved others. They're referencing the fact that clearly Jesus had healed, had saved so many people. And John's gospel ends with an account that if everything would have been written down about all the people Jesus saved, all the books in the world wouldn't be able to contain it. Obviously, it's a hyperbolic statement, but the point is is clear. Jesus' three-year ministry was one of healing, 
casting out demons, restoring the blind and the lame and the mute and the deaf, casting out demons. And so here they say, well, you've saved others. Jesus, save yourself. I tell you what, Jesus, if you come down from the cross, if you save yourself from the cross, we'll believe in you. Now, of course, in one sense, if Jesus would have come down from the cross, they would have believed something. But here's the problem, because there is a still deeper irony. Jesus can't save others unless he saves himself. See, it is only by remaining on the cross, by taking his people's sin upon himself, by not saving himself, that he is able to save others. Jesus can't save himself, because doing so would damn all others. And so in the deeper irony, which the mockers do not see and do not understand, they once again speak far more truth than they could imagine. The one who can't save others saves himself. And the fourth and final irony on the cross, the man who cries out in despair trusts God. Look at verses 43 through 46. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if we, we're going to take some more time, we could show you how this entire cross scene is almost a replaying out of Psalm 22. Particularly what's so interesting is, whether they realize it or not, there's all these things that the mockers are doing in this section, which is word for word practically taken out of Psalm 22, where David is writing about those people who are mocking him. David writes this in Psalm 22, 7 through 8. Just hear the refrain. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Those are the mockers of David in Psalm 22. Whether they realize it or not, the mockers are enacting the very cursing and mocking and belittling that David's enemies had done to him in Psalm 22. But there is a deeper irony because Jesus, when he cries out, my God, my God, you've forsaken me, he's crying out also from Psalm 22. See, Jesus, the true and greater David, also cries out in desolation. But Jesus' cry of desolation demonstrates that his trust is in God. Because the whole second half of the psalm turns. And the whole second half of Psalm 22 is a psalm of trust in the midst of his sorrow and suffering. Psalm 22, verse 28. For the kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over all the nations. See, the priests and the Pharisees, they're mocking Jesus hanging on the cross, and they say, if God desires him, let him save him. But they don't understand their own scriptures. Because Isaiah 53.10, the father's desire was for the son to suffer. It says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief. And yet, because of the son's willingness to be crushed, the father also desires to glorify the son and give him the name above all other names. All because the man who cries out in despair really trusts God. Now, we've quickly run through these four ironies of the cross, and we could multiply the applications from it. But let's just draw two kind of main application points. First is this. 
I hope that this is the first time you're seeing these ironies of the cross. I hope it inspires you to read and reread your Bible. There can be a tendency for us to read our Bibles for information. We read it for just the points, the history, or, or to get our structures together. But that's to miss the most important point. Of course, we need to read and learn things about history and to understand facts of the Bible. Oh, of course, that's all good. But all of the knowledge and facts are only important if they lead to worship. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, the chief end of man is to worship God and enjoy him forever. See, friends, one of the most dangerous things we can let happen to us is to read a passage like this and not be shook to our core at the reality of what it's teaching us. Now, obviously, not every book or chapter of the Bible grabs us as deeply as the crucifixion account, and for good reason. But every book of the Bible gives us countless reasons to worship God. As a friend, I would just say, if, if you've been in a season of maybe routine Bible reading, maybe the trials of these days have, have put a damper on your time with the Lord and reading the Word and going through the motions, I, I'd love to talk to you and encourage you because the aim of all Bible reading is awe of God and worship. Or as has been well said, the aim of all theology, study of God, is doxology, the worship of God. One more point of application is found there in verse 50. Look at verse 50 one more time. See if you caught this. It says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Notice that's active. Jesus is the actor there. It's not passive. Something's not happening to him. He is yielding up his spirit. John's gospel puts it this way. No one takes my life from me, Jesus says. I lay it down of my own accord. Matthew presents Jesus as the actor, as power, not as his life being torn from him, but as one who lays down his life for sinners. Jesus is sovereign even over the moment when he heals his spirit, which is to say he is able to give his life as a ransom for many. And in the midst of days like these, with many question marks, with people suffering, with people dying, with sickness, with worry, with loss of jobs, it can be easy to be overcome by what is in front of us. But the whole story of the Bible should be read through this type of lens, that God is the actor, that Jesus is the actor, that he is in control. So just a few reminders of God working out his decree. Psalm 115.3, these are verses I come to often as these reminders. Our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Or Psalm 33 expands on the same point, verses 8 through 11. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Whereas Ephesians 1.11, Paul puts it this way. That God works out all things according to the counsel of his will. So friends, I'd say in times of uncertainty and suffering, God would have us remember that he's never caught off guard. He's, he's never taken by surprise. Not even the last breath and yielding up of the spirit of Jesus was outside of his sovereign control. His counsel and his plans are being worked out for his glory and for our good. So I hope you're able to rest in that reality, friends. Well, that is the ironies of the cross, the first point. Our second point will be shorter. We're just going to look quickly at this 
skepticism of the priests and Pharisees. We'll look again at verses 51 through 54 and then 62 through 66. 51 through 54. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And then 62 to the end. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise, and therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him and tell the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. The skepticism of the priests and Pharisees. Think about this for a second. Think about how they respond. You, you, you hear them, the imposter This last fraud will be worse than his first. You hear them, and it actually comes up again in chapter 28 after the resurrection. We're going to say, let's pay some money, and let's find a way to cover this whole thing over, and we'll blame it on them as a lie. So notice their skepticism. Even this day, by the time they go to Pilate and get permission to seal it with a guard, they had already experienced the three hours of darkness. They had already experienced, or probably would have heard by then, that the, the curtain of the temple had been ripped from top to bottom. They would have felt the earthquake, the rocks splitting. And over the next coming days, they would have seen dead people come out of their tombs and go visit and come back into Jerusalem. What an incredible thing. We'd have more time to look at that sometime. It's a fascinating passage to think about it. And yet after all these things, they still say, we don't want his last fraud to be greater than his first. The imposter said. See, we must remember, friends, these were devout Jews. This isn't like the kind of secularism that we're dealing with today that just says, ah, there's no such thing as miracles. These are not hardened atheists. These are men who saw the Old Testament as God's word to them. They believed in God and his miracles. They believed in the Exodus and all the amazing miracles. Yet for all their belief in God's word, they present a picture of unbelief. You see, they're so convinced that they're right, that they're actually they are able to ignore the multitude of evidences that was right in front of them. So in another twist of irony, Matthew records that the Jewish leaders who've memorized much of the scriptures, they don't get it. And yet the Roman centurion believes in Jesus. See, friends, unchecked skepticism is an incredibly dangerous thing. Let me give you just an example from my own life. I tend to be a bit of a skeptic by nature. So years ago, I was working for a company where I had to travel back to Richmond, Virginia a couple times a year. And after traveling back there, uh, I'll never forget meeting this one peer in Virginia for the first time. We'd been on phone calls before. I'd never met him face to face. And we meet him. He's like, oh, you know, how's it going? He's like, "Ah, I've yet to visit Portland. I hear the roads out there are really loud. Now, first of all, that's just a weird thing to say to somebody. The roads are loud. And I'm like, I I don't know who told you that. I I don't, I've never experienced that. I'm kind of confused. And he's like, oh no, man, everybody talks about it. The roads are really loud out there. And, and I just blew him off again. So he calls a guy over. He's like, come here. And he calls this guy over, just gotten back from Portland like two days before. And uh, he's like, tell him. He says he doesn't believe that the roads are loud in, in Portland. And this guy looks at me, he's like, dude, your roads are so loud in Portland. And I'm like, I, I think you guys are crazy, but okay. I mean, I just didn't believe it. Even those guys literally telling me, he just experienced this. I'm just a skeptic by nature. I'm like, ah, I just don't buy it. 
And, but I was like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll make a note. So I set a reminder to go off my phone. So when I'd land in Portland, like, oh, that's right. Listen for loud ro- roads. And I drove around Virginia like, okay, I guess it sounds like the road. I guess I don't know. Well, I got back to Portland and I get my, my truck out of the airport parking garage and I dry out, drive out and my reminder had just gone off. Like, oh, that's right. Listen for road noise. I didn't have to listen. Our no- roads in Portland are freakishly, ridiculously loud. I think it's the water that washes out the oil. But they are just absurdly loud. Go drive anywhere else in the world, and it doesn't sound like that. Our roads sound like constant pain. Uh, But here's the point. My initial skepticism was not connected to any testing. It was not connected to any, any real reasoning or careful thought or willingness even to examine the issue. It was literally just my gut. I was confident. I knew that it couldn't be that way. Even when someone told me, I just got back from there, it still just didn't, I denied it. And maybe you're tuning in this morning, and maybe you're a bit like I was in that conversation, or you're a bit like these Pharisees and these priests. Maybe you deny that Jesus really is all that he says he is. Or maybe you say, yeah, he might have been, but I just, I don't think he's that important. Friend, I hope that you'll be willing to see just how blind we can be to things that are right in front of us even when evidence is stack and stack and stack. You know, when we think about it, our tendency to assume that we are correct, even though we've never thought through things, it's a radically arrogant claim because it it basically claims we're omniscient. It says that I know everything I need to know. There's nothing I can learn on this topic. And ironically, I've never met a skeptic who says that they're skeptical because they're arrogant. Their claim is, I'm skeptical because I want to take a humble position. I want to be willing to say, well, you know, I want to, I want to take all the, all the possibilities here. So in the name of openness, in the name of a healthy skepticism, many people functionally act as though they're omniscient, as that there's no chance that they could be wrong. See, it's been wisely said, until you can explain someone else's position, in a way that they would not just approve of, but that they would actually applaud, then you don't really know your own position as well as you think you do. Well, this morning, maybe you're tuning in and you're a bit skeptical. Maybe skeptical about Jesus and his life and death and what that could possibly mean for you. I would love to speak with you. You'd email the church. I'd love to set up a time to talk. But with that, let's close with this. As we mentioned, today is Palm Sunday. On this day, all those years ago, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt of the donkey. And as was read earlier, say, fulfilling the words of the prophecy of Zechariah, say to daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And as Jesus rode that colt into Jerusalem that morning, people cried out, Hosanna to the son of David, which is to say, On this day, all those years ago, Jesus rode into town on a donkey and everybody said, here is our king. Here is the one we worship. And yet less than one week later, Jesus is naked, beaten, and nailed to a cross with a sign over his head that this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. See, in the crucifixion, we find the most heinous crime ever committed. The creator has been condemned by the created. The eternal has experienced execution. In one week, Jesus goes from being Hosanna to being crucified as a fake king. And friends, we deceive ourselves if we think for a moment that we would have acted more wisely or more discerningly had we been there. We are just as fickle 
we're just as easily swayed. But the one incredible hope of this text is found uh, and highlighted so well in Don Carson's commentary in this passage. He quotes from this poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. It says this, Yea, once Emmanuel's orphaned cry, his universe hath shaken. It went up single, echoless, my God, I am forsaken. It went up from the holy's lips amid his lost creation, that of the lost no son should use those words of desolation. Which is simply to say this, Jesus' cry of my God I am forsaken means that all those who repent in him never have to be. That all those who will turn and trust in him and rest in him and repent of their sins will never be left desolate because he is an all-sufficient Savior. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning, for this text that shows us the incredible reality of you sending your son to die in our place. And we pray that this text would once again draw us not just into a place of more information, but into greater awe and worship and adoration and love for you. That we'd be changed. That we'd be willing to acknowledge the many ways that we continue to fall short and yet rejoice in the wonderful provision of your son on the cross in our place. It is for his sake that we pray. Amen.